Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here again with Ryan O'Connor. Welcome. Hi. And going off the back of the last conversation we had, one of the things that we really wanted to talk about on one of Ryan's interests, hobbies, I don't know what you call it, is well, I've never gotten paid for it. So Sorry, what works. was that? I've never gotten paid for it, so hobby works. <laughs> is neuroscience. You were saying last time that our brains the way we think is basically a hot mess. Yeah. <laughs> want to um, expand on that? From, from a certain perspective, and, and I will put the disclaimer before I go into anything and say that uh, I didn't finish my degree in psychology. I got to, to two years uh, through and then decided that uh, it was all a bit de- depressing and switched to theatre instead. But that being said, it's something that, when you, you you do learn about it, you start to pick up on other things as well. And, and I have kept my hand in by reading uh, the psychology articles that come out occasionally. And it is all just very interesting. So I, I would like to put a disclaimer on that. I'm not a practicing psychologist. I am someone who who just studied it for, for a couple of years and, and then has, has continued to, to read about it. So I, I will preface this with a, a fun little tidbit which is that psychology actually means the study of the soul and not the study of the mind, which I always found very, very interesting. Yeah, Uh, psyche is is the soul. So when it was started, and a lot of people started with with Freud and and Jung and and that ilk of people in in Vienna, it was was the study of of who we are as people, What, what you would call practical philosophy, which is why I also studied philosophy at the same time in university. But that being said, you know, as we try to decide what it meant to be human and what happened on the inside of our our eyes, we realised the more and more of it had to do with the construction of our brains. And so we started to study the mind instead of the soul, the soul being something that's very um, intangible, whereas the brain is something that you can poke around in and actually study, which makes for much better scientific scrutiny. So I would I would like to, to just point out that psychology as a study is very young. It's very, very young. This isn't medicine. We haven't been doing it for thousands of years. I mean, medicine started with Hippocrates in Greece, which was 500 BC, thereabouts. And um, psychology started with Freud in Vienna in the 1800s. So we, we know much less about it, but we do know quite a bit about it. Science having come further in the last several hundred years than it has in the whole of human history. That being said, if you are the sort of person who looks at one of those fun plaster molds of a brain that has a lot of little writing on it that says this is the specific part of the brain that handles, for instance, verbs or tying shoelaces or that kind of thing, then I have some bad news for you, which is that there's this thing called neuroplasticity, which means that you can't count on any one specific part of the brain to do anything, uh, least of which is the job that it's supposed to be doing. 
there are broad stretches of the brain that, that have specific functions, but you can't really rely on that. Everyone's brain is, is slightly different, which is why CAT scans exist. So that's how I'm going to start this conversation. <laughs> so, I mean, I know quite a lot about it, obviously. I, I could talk for a really, really long time about what I know about the brain. But as someone who knows less, what's, where would you like to start? Let's look at it from the point of view of the conversations we've been having about morality, basically, and working out your own personal values and how you take in information and what you do with that information. Is that a good place to start or do I delete yeah. all that bit and we start? That's, pretty, that's, that's a pretty good place to start. And I will give you, listener and viewer, an understanding of how the brain is broadly constructed because as humans have um, evolved, to, to put our religious listeners on the spot here, the brain has become more and more complex. And so there are layers to the brain. At the very center of them is the brain stem, right? Which is, which is literally what we need to stay alive. That is the connection between the neurons and all the various organs that we have so that we can continue to function as, as something that's a little bit more than a collection of carbon and, and oxygen and iron. Above that is the next layer of organs in the brain, the, the specific subparts that control hormones and uh, pulse and respiration, things like that. After that, you get more and more complex things, fear responses, emotional responses. And then after that is the final layer, which is memory, language, the stuff that we would really call psychology, the study of the soul. That outer layer is what makes us human and not animal. The more you peel away at those layers, the more animalistic you become. Where does religion and faith come into this? Because I remember reading something about it not long ago. I've been reading Richard Dawkins, who is very interesting. (laughs) And there are parts of the brain that are specifically dedicated to faith and religion, aren't there? In a way, in 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 a very specific way. I think a better way to put it would be they are dedicated to trust in that they're dedicated to a, a kind of a contentment that uh, we can believe that things are happening for a reason and that other people can be trusted. And when that part of the brain is, is very active, we feel very content and very looked after, which is why a lot of people have associated that part of the brain with very religious people. Because if they feel that there's a larger plan going on, sometimes it has, you know, something to do with that very small part of the brain, which is in here, being very active because they feel very safe, very cared for, but they can't quite put their finger on precisely who is caring for them and looking out. And then that, that's where religion comes into it. So that's, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a very interesting topic of conversation and quite a divisive one in psychology because... Overall, there isn't, again, there's, there's no specific part of the brain that really can be said to do the same job in everyone's brain, except for the really important stuff, you know, the organs and things and hormones. When it comes to the outer layer of the brain where we store memory and then thoughts and senses and things like that, it's all just, we'll make it up as we go along. <laughs> a, a part of the brain that's dedicated to religion is 
you know, it has uh, multiple places. You were talking say, last podcast about the woman who lost the connection between the two hemispheres, the brain and lost the voice. That's the corpus callosum. It's the largest bundle of, of sensory nerves that you'll get in the entire body. It, it connects the two hemispheres, which both have independent functions because for some obscure reason, we developed two brains at the same time. And they want to pretend just for the moment that they're two very small human beings in one large trench coat pretending to be one very large human being. And so those two halves of, of the brain communicating together caused in this woman the voice that we hear on the inside of our heads, the, the one that, that narrates our lives to us. And when she lost that, she could no longer hear the voice. And I'm sure that her, her experience could not be measured. If you did that to 100 people, you would not get that result in, in, in every one of them. Uh, that's just how the brain is. All of us are different. But that kind of connection is what happens in every part of the brain all the time. Every part is connected to every other part in such a way that you can't untangle the whole thing um, to tell you know, which specific part is doing anything. Where's that thought coming from? Where's the voice? You know, Is it coming from the sensory part of the brain or is it coming from the memory part of the brain? Is it coming from the muscular part of the brain? Because there's, there's a nice big bit along here that um, tells us where all of our muscles are. And a lot of people have less activity in that, which means they're constantly clumsy. They're tripping over things. <laughs> but that also controls a lot of our speech, you know, not just understanding words and, and talking about them, but, but accents and um, emphasis and, and, you know, our, our specific voice as a, as a person. And when you can't hear that on the inside, what does that do to our ability to listen to ourselves? Thank you. Okay, here's a really left field question for you here. Because years ago when I did IQ tests, I scored the highest. My highest score was in logic and it was it was pretty high. And I look at the likes of, say, Sherlock Holmes, who has zero belief in God or anything like that. What does what does logic have to do with? religion and faith and everything because I don't feel that I'm an unhappy person I feel like quite safe and content and all the rest of it I don't need religion what does I'm really digging a hole for myself here aren't I it has very little to do with psychology but but we can go down that line there has long been the claim that being more intelligent more educated means that there's less room for religion in a person's life it's actually been disproven in the last couple of decades. Einstein himself was quite religious over the course of his life. But that being said, logic is not an inherent part of the brain. Logic is taught. It's, it's a pattern, like a science, a method of, of rationalizing decisions and comprehending and digesting information. It's true that when it is used, it helps to understand the universe in a way that helps to be more intelligent, to use, to harness the natural calculations that happen in our brain and, and put them to, to more streamlined use. I wouldn't say that logic doesn't allow us to be religious. Religion is the acceptance of the incomprehensible in the world, I think. Whereas logic insists that everything can be understood, 
and broken down into smaller parts. When I was very small, when I was 10, I was very small when I was 10. You can attest to this. I believe that the whole universe could be boiled down into a simple set of four or five rules, rules that we have no basis of understanding, but they would govern how atoms would move, how far apart matter has to be, what gravity is, things like that. Once you understood those rules, everything else would make sense. There's no room for God in that, except as the writer of those rules. And I think the more we understand of the universe, the more we understand we know nothing. But we hold on to the assumption that underneath it all, there must be a set of rules. There must be a, a set of, of values that governs everything. It was decided in the very early moments. And so I think the more you hold on to that assumption, which comes from a very logical way of looking at the universe, the less room in there there is for something like God, which can interfere at any moment and change the rules. We don't like that. That stops any understanding of the universe from happening. It, it's completely at odds with a logical understanding of the universe. Yeah, yes and no, because I'm also really good at turning on a sixpence when something happens, <laughs> as you well know. <laughs> I'll just do a complete 180 and go off in another direction. And I agree, I mean, to the people that are listening here, Ryan was studying quantum mechanics at the age of 10. And <laughs> he was very proud of himself. He used to go over with the adults and bamboozle them with all this information. Do I need to say you looked a little bit like a hobbit then and you used to dress like Frodo? I don't think that's necessary. Oh, okay, I won't say that then. But although logic is a part of it, it doesn't, for me, for you, for Jamie, um, it doesn't preclude being able to be okay with I don't know what I don't know and I can't predict what's going to happen next. It doesn't preclude that. Mm-hmm. So we're quite happy to go, yeah, no, can't explain it, is what I mean. Yeah. So how does think, that fit into that argument? Well, I, I think that, that that is true. There is a lot that we are aware that we don't know that we don't know. 99% of the universe is, is unexplored. We, we don't know what gravity is, what causes it. We don't know whether light is a particle or a wave. We, <laughs> you know. Uh, the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics states that we can't be certain of either something's exact location or its exact weight. You know, there's there's uncertainty bred into the universe, and we 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 know that we understand that. I think what is precluded is those rules changing on us at any given moment. Not not that we find out that we're wrong, but something has interfered with the rules of the universe from one point to another. So if we found out tomorrow that gravity was suddenly subtly different we'd be enraged we'd be so angry (laughs) because that's just messy we don't like that but also if that happened the only logical cause would be god something changed a fundamental value in the universe the logical answer is that something out there is capable of changing you know especially if it's in a conscious way it's like in deep space when you're watching something moving at incomprehensible speeds from one point to another, and then suddenly it changes direction. What other logical assumption can there be than that it has changed its own course and there's therefore a light um, if we can't see the act of any other force upon it? It's all about, I think, um, the, the way in which we process information. 
we assume that these laws are, are there and they're immutable. They are unchanging. And because of that, the world functions as it functions. If they changed on the daily, nothing could be understood. We'd be infuriated. <laughs> We'd be a man on a raft in the middle of the ocean, incapable of, of figuring out how to raise a sail or measure the tides or watch the stars. I think we replace God in our world with a faith in those laws, the assumption that there is a sense to all of this, that there is a reason that all of this happens. And it's not God in our world, it's, it's gravity or electromagnetism. We, we have a faith in the physicality of the world, that what exists, exists. You know, we're not going to talk about Plato. We're not, not going to talk about a bunch of other philosophers who are like, we're not really here at all. No one can be sure that anything else exists. No, shut up. We're not listening to that. We exist. Other people exist and the world exists. That's what we have faith in. The metaphysical, because we're so aware of how much we don't know, you know, what's the point in sort of filling that space with anything? There's always more to explore. I don't think we'll ever know everything. I don't think it's possible. This is kind of moving into the reality conversation here. And I really got present to our reality exists only in our observation and our and the meaning that we attach to it. Yeah. And that in itself allows me to not necessarily be attached to how things look. Mm-hmm. And those laws that you're talking about and faith and a God or the universe or anything, it, it's, it's about creating your own reality. I really got present to, we've gone so far off the topic I wanted to talk about. Right. Should we go back like 10 paces here? You can if you want to, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was ready to talk about Phineas Gage and, and other psychological case studies. Okay, go talk to me about Phineas Gage. Who's Phineas Gage? Okay. Well, we were talking about neuroplasticity and you wanted to know what a red hot mess uh, the human brain is. So the best way to talk about that is Phineas Gage, right, who was a railway worker who had an accident. They were using explosives to, to lay a railway track and one of them went off prematurely and drove uh, an iron spike through his skull. Right? <sighs> Everyone has that specific facial expression as a reaction <sighs> to that, by the way. Yeah. He survived, shockingly. It went through his brain, out the other side, and he was A-OK. In fact, he was talking less than an hour later. However, the people who knew him best said that after the accident, he had changed. He was more aggressive, more listless, less capable of having faith in people, in being content. It was almost as if he was a different person, which was our first look as a species really, uh, in a way that was recorded and, and distributed throughout the world and studied to the idea of neuroplasticity. Without any given part of the brain, we, we may die, but we could also survive and we will make use of, of what we can, but there's no telling what part of the brain may be taken out. In his case, you know, he still had a lot of his memory. He lost a little bit of it, which is fair when you sustain massive trauma to the brain, but he functioned as a human being, which is, you know, the only way to, to say that you're healthy, I think. In psychology, they say that you're not sick unless you can state that you can't function normally, you know, which leaves a whole debate open for what normal function is. And 
so on and so forth. But he could function normally. He was just a different person after that. That was the beginning of the study of neuroplasticity. So the bits of his brain maybe that his memories of empathy and connection and love and all that kind of thing and patience had been wiped out. Or perhaps it's instilled in him a curiosity, a sense of mortality, an unwillingness to put up with complacency. Who can say? It just changed him forever. When was that? This was uh, 1800s, I think mid to late 1800s. I cannot remember a date. But there's, there's quite a few case studies like that. Um, one of them is Mr. Kim, who was the man who, was, who had Rain Man based on with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. He was a non-autistic savant, right, which is fancy word for he was really, really clever. He could do things with numbers and observation that would stagger the normal person. But he didn't have a corpus callosum connecting his hemispheres. He had the same thing that you were saying with this psychologist in the 90s. But the effect on him was very, very different. He was almost painfully aware of what was happening around him in a way that was overloading, I think, in a lot of ways. But he was a, a case study for a very, very long time. Everyone disgusting. That's why Rain Man was made into a film. He was very, very curious. But he wasn't autistic, I think. Rain Man kind of... And a lot of films do. When someone's a genius... They tend to try to balance that up by them being terrible with people. But let's be honest, a lot of us aren't geniuses and are still terrible with people. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. But he was he was a non-autistic savant because of the way that his brain was constructed. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's better than most people at everything. He was certainly better at observing things. Because one of the functions of the human brain, as we're all well aware, is to stop ourselves from seeing everything. How much information is processed through the eyes at any given time? How many points of light? You know, how many book titles are you surrounded by in, in any given room? You could read all of them. You could read any of them. How many leaves are on a tree? One of the major functions of the human brain is to decide what information is important and what you can get rid of because there's only so much storage space that you've got up here. And if your brain can't decide to get rid of information, you know, what's that going to do to you? Where's it going to store it? What's the downside? If you can read every expression on a human being's face, would that help you better understand them or would it confuse you? Because we're not aware of what we're thinking in any given moment. Let's be honest. None of us knows what's going on in here or out there. Psychology for you. <laughs> Which isn't to say that we don't know what, what happens in the brain. We do, more or less. It is still something that we're discovering. Every, every day brings, brings new results. I was reading just this morning about a study that they were doing on menopause, actually, funnily enough. Uh, it started in 1991 and it went for 15 years, right? And they were studying about the long-term effects of hormonal changes in women. Obviously, you're going to study menopause. One of the things they tried to do was change the hormone levels in a person's brain to, to distinguish whether or not that would help menopause, right? Because it's seen as a problem. As you're well aware, menopause is seen as a problem by a lot of people, right? So one of the things they tried to do was alter the hormone levels to make the hot flashes, uh, hot flashes and, and memory loss and mood swings and decrease all that kind of thing. They gave them an estrogen treatment. And it was discontinued after 12 years because of the massive risk of heart problems, cancer, kidney disease, things like that. So all we can really say for certain is that the brain functions miraculously because we have no idea why. We're still figuring it out. 
we're pretty sure that this, this specific bit does this and this bit does this. You know, you've got the corpus callosum. And we know that that connects the two hemispheres of the brain because we know that if you cut it, bad things start to happen. Is that the only thing it does? I don't know. Maybe. Depends. If you take out the front part of anyone's brain, and there was a case study that, that did that in the 1970s, will you lose memory? Because that's where memory is traditionally stored. No. As it turns out, you will still have memory. I had an interesting experience talking about that the frontal lobe when your youngest sister, who must weigh 45 kilos wet through, decided she wanted to be a rugby player. Yeah. And she ran into this other girl and she hit with her forehead the side of this girl's head. The girl just dropped down unconscious. Keely carried on playing. She said, Mum, I was so aggressive. I finished that match off and I finished the next one and nobody had come near me. I scored so many tries. <laughs> but what I noticed was when she came home, because it was she, she actually broke her nose and she had two black eyes and we had to bring her home. She ended up being off school for about two and a half months, something like that. But she came home and she said, I want to go down to the beach. So I said, okay. So I took her down and I could, I knew being her mum, she was 14, 15 at the time, that she wasn't right and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And we got down to the beach and she just stood there and I said, what's the matter? And she said, why is it sunny over there and it's not sunny here? And she, honest to God, couldn't figure out clouds over the over the sun and then she also started to lose direction she couldn't uh, not not direction but her spatial recognition maps and that kind of thing so we went into the shopping center which as you know is Keela's favorite place to be and she couldn't remember where she was so she'd just stop in the middle of the corridor and she'd be frozen and then she'd start turning around trying to figure out where she was she couldn't work it out and that lasted for about four weeks on and off she couldn't make her way home she literally couldn't do anything and that was all from the bump to the middle of a forehead mm. which is, is is interesting because for instance spatial recognition reading sensory information, they're all processed in that order, here, here, and back here. Interestingly enough, traditionally, this area is, is memory and processing a problem, traditionally. But the brain is very adaptive, and it's not always adaptive necessarily in a way that's obviously helpful. One of the trauma responses is that it shuts down specific parts of the brain in order to function better. For instance, if the brain is damaged, and it gets damaged, let's be honest, really easily. It's so complicated, guys. It's the single most complicated engine ever developed. If it starts to break down, it will shut down specific parts of the brain in order to conserve energy. You don't want to put it under too much stress. For instance, when you've got a really, really high fever, you'll start to hallucinate, and you'll start to have all sorts of problems in speech and uh, cognitive thought, memory, things like that. And that's specific parts of the brain shutting down because it can't deal with the heat. And it's the same with, with concussions and things like that. It's easy to think, oh, there's, there's blood in the brain, there's fluid in the brain, it's bruised the brain. The brain doesn't work like that. It's, it's less of a specific organ like the skin, which is an organ, and more like a really 
tightly woven ball of yarn, a thousand strings interconnecting with one another. Each of them has a different connection to a different part of the brain. It's like pulling a vein in your arm will occasionally pull on your heart, or it might connect down to the arteries that lead to the leg. There's a thousand different connections in there. And because each of us is individual, there's no way to be certain of what's really happening in one part of the brain or another. If she hit here, the thought would be it hurt this bit, but that's not how the brain works. If you shut down a couple of the neurons here, those strings connect to different parts of the brain. It has a long-term effect because you might not pull on them and then dislodge certain parts, but if you think of them as, as, as tunnels, as wires, information isn't crossing from one part of the brain to another. And eventually it will heal those things. That's what we're supposed to do. It's how we make new memories. But it's insanely complicated. It's, it's, it is the most complicated engine ever built. No doubt about that. And that's why we know so little about it. As much as we know about everything in the universe, it's so complicated and so adaptive that honestly trying to understand it is laughable. The more you learn about it, we're doing our best. But it's, um, it's a labor of a lifetime <laughs> there's two things I want to comment on about that so you and Jamie used to cut your head like yeah. you, you had cuts all over your head you two sisters concussed themselves really badly mm-hmm. so the older one when she concussed herself as you know she damaged her optical and auditory processing centers the other bizarre thing that happened with her is She was doing advanced maths at the time. She was in year 10. She was doing advanced maths, but she couldn't remember her times tables. She had no, if somebody said to her, what's six times six? She, honest to God, couldn't work it out, but she could do advanced maths. So she had to spend a year and a half just relearning everything up to about year three, I think, had gone as far as maths goes. And the other weird thing with Kira was, and because it had damaged her auditory processing center, if she turned to the left quickly, she fell over. <laughs> so she'd forgotten how to turn to a left. She had to actually think about it. So if she was driving, she'd have to think, okay, I need to go that way. And she'd have to look that way and then turn a corner, which, as you can imagine, caused a few problems when she was on the road not the best thing to do the other thing the other place I was going was when you're in menopause one of the issues is sleeplessness because the hormones you don't get the correct hormones and everything and the problem when you don't sleep is when you go into deep sleep your brain actually shrinks and basically squeezes out all the toxins it has a big poo when you when you're asleep and it goes out into the cerebral fluid which goes out and it's excreted through your bodily functions but if you don't go into deep sleep like you don't during menopause the brain doesn't get to do that which leads to a lot of the brain fog that's why it's foggy because your brain is literally wading through all this gunk that it hasn't managed to get rid of so talk to me about those two things. Just start dump all of them on you at once before I forgot. Okay, I will say sleep is, against all available evidence, one of the most complicated parts of 
human psychology. We are still to this day not entirely certain why we need to sleep or for why we need to sleep for a specific amount of time or, or really what dreams do. We can guess. We have pretty good guesses, but we're not certain. It's a whole level of study that you get really, really serious people devoting their entire lives to it. So I know less about sleep than other things because it's its own, it's its own thing. I'm going to put that in a box. I don't know anything about sleep psychology. Put it in a box. We didn't do it. It's very advanced stuff. Against what we would, we would think because sleep, we would think, is the base state of being human. Being awake is the hard part. But, but no, sleep is, is the interesting one because of the way that sleep affects different parts of the brain. You know, when you're a jellyfish, you're basically asleep all the time. You're just floating along, glooping, having a good time. When you're more advanced than that, when you become, let's say, a lobster, you don't really need to sleep as we know it, but you do enter, you know, states of dormant activity. And when you become a little bit more complicated, let's say you're going to be a, a rat. No, rats are too complicated. Let's say you're going to be a chicken. Chickens do need to sleep. They don't need to sleep for very long. But really, it's just an excuse to get through the dark part of the night, which is the dangerous part, without getting into trouble. And then you get to humans, which are really, really complicated. And you might have noticed we're going through the different layers of the brain, right? Each of them reacts differently to sleep. And they, they have sleep for different reasons. And so there is the theory that the only reason, re, real reason that we need to sleep is to keep us out of trouble for a certain amount of time and to limit the amount of information that goes through the brain. We just kind of regurgitate stuff. And, and there is a set of physiological functions that sleep serves. You know, we heal damaged neurons. We, we make a few more. Dreaming is theoretically us going through the events of the day and, and kind of filing them in a specific order. Theoretically, though, dreaming is a whole, it's a whole can of worms. We're not going to go into dreaming. I've forgotten the first question. That was the second question. What was the first question? No, the first, it wasn't really a question. It was more a commentary about Kira's head injury with the auditory processing and and the bits of memory that she forgot. Okay, good question. Fun fact for you. There are several different kinds of memory, and I'm not talking long-term memory, short-term memory, instantaneous memory. I'm talking like sensory memory. I'm talking musculoskeletal memory. We store information very differently. Memory is a sense and not just information. We, we use it to navigate our lives. And in order to illustrate that, I would ask you to imagine how much more difficult your life would be if I removed the memory of the alphabet, right? You would probably still be able to read. But if I asked you what the 13th letter of the alphabet would be, you would almost certainly go back and think, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If I removed that song from your brain, untold problems would begin to occur in you as a person trying to function in real life. I imagine the problem that Kira had was that the memory of her times tables was associated with a poster or, or a book page. And when she stopped being able to process sensory information, she could no longer picture that. So she couldn't use it. Something as simple as that can affect us in untold ways. She would definitely still be able to do advanced maths because she's learning that right now. 
But the stuff that she learned really early, the memories that we consistently use over and over and over again until they're inextricably woven into who we are as people. That's the, that's the tough stuff. Can't really remake those memories. And because we learn things so differently as adults to how we do as kids, replacing that memory would definitely have been very, very difficult to have because she needed to, to connect it to a whole bunch of other things because the way that we file information is also really important. The alphabet song, for instance, is connected to how many other parts of our, of our lives? Do we connect it to being drunk, having to prove that we're sober? Do we connect it to birthdays? Do we connect it to story time, to what it was like to be a kid? to the big broad brimmed hats we used to wear. What, there's a thousand things you can connect that to and there definitely are a thousand different connections of that one particular neuron. And that's how complicated we are as people. When you remove any one part of the brain, who knows what could happen? Bad things, bad things can happen. Bad things happen, bad, yes. Bad things can happen. Yeah. It was interesting in Kira's case how it impacted her psychologically as well. A massive impact on her psychologically. Yeah, she was off school for six months. And even five years later, she was still struggling with certain things. One of the big things, she couldn't change focus with her eyes. So she couldn't look at the chalkboard and then look at the computer screen and then look at a notebook. She couldn't change that focus in her eyes. And she could only do distance, look distance for, I think it was about 20 minutes. Even when she was doing her HSC two and a half years later, she had to stop every half an hour for 10 minutes to give her eyes a rest, just wander around and then go back in the room or sit, but not go back in the room, but sit back down at her desk. But she had to stop. And that was two and a half years later. So it can take an awful long time to heal and she was under top specialists as well how many kids me go through that kind of thing and don't even realize that that's their problem they just wonder what on earth's going on yeah we've been talking about what happens when you lose what we would call one of the more advanced things that we learn that this is the outer layer the alphabet song is not something you can teach a dog although it's really really simple for us as people multiple times tables very simple for us Super, super complicated for a jellyfish. What if you lost the neuron that allowed you to control how dilated or constricted your pupils are? How would that affect you? That's practical blindness. There's no way you're going to be able to relearn that without really specific training, <laughs> despite how simple that is. All of us take that for granted. But there are layers and layers and layers of information that is, that's stored in here that we cannot afford to lose which is why Phineas Gage, to get back to that example, is so weird. Everyone's instant reaction is how on earth did he survive taking out a chunk of his brain? What did he lose? And how on earth did he manage to survive? Apparently he needed to be fed for a while and he needed to be helped around, around the house. But in fairness, that happens after pretty much every major injury. The fact that he survived with a personality, he could still speak. There's a photo of him some 20 years later. He looks quite dapper. It's an untold miracle, not only that we can survive, but that we continue to do so, you know, given how fragile we are. We are extremely fragile. How do the four levels of the brain communicate with each other? What happens there? Four, okay, four is overly simplistic. I will put that out there. It's oh, okay. just a metaphor to decide because 
there's whole arguments about how old specific parts of the brain are and it has to do with, you know, hormones and, you know, organs and things like that. And when did we develop lungs and how old is the heart and things like that? It's complicated. <laughs> that a few times in this conversation. It's, it, it, and it is. I know that a lot of this conversation has, has resulted in us saying it's complicated. But really what that means is we're not entirely sure what the answer is. And because we're not entirely sure, the best way to, to tell you about it is to tell you know, all the, the different sides of the argument, say what evidence we have and say what the most likely conclusion is. But it's not likely enough to be a certainty. The different layers of the brain is a broad way of speaking. But if you, for instance, threaded a needle through the brain stem, right, which is undoubtedly the most important part of the brain because that connects the brain to everything else in your body. If you severed that, you wouldn't be able to breathe or pump your heart or digest anything. And yet people have survived from excruciating injuries to that part of the brain. People have survived taking out the hypothalamus, which regulates a lot of our bodily functions. People have survived a whole bunch of things. I mean, chickens can survive taking off their heads we haven't managed to do that yet, but it's only a matter of time. They were talking about brain transplants. And the more you know about the brain, the more you can only just say, what? Transplanting a brain? Are you insane? That's ridiculous because it's so tied to who we are as people. It's, it's tied to our bodies. The, I was chatting to my wife, my new wife, Joe. She herself is not new, but she's newly wife. She was chatting before about a story that she heard uh, in, about a heart transplant. And so a man was given a new heart and the heart had belonged to a cyclist who was very, very fit. And when they put the heart into the new person, he suddenly felt like he had to go out and do a lot of exercise. He, ha he wanted to go cycling. You know, he wanted to pick up a lot of the active hobbies that the previous owner of the heart you know, had. And she was talking about how a lot of people use that as evidence for the, the memory and DNA thing, like what, kind of memories do organs have, things like that. You know, I, I personally would argue that your brain is aware to a certain extent of what each of your organs needs. And if it needs a lot of high intensity cardio exercise, you're going to know about that. You're going to know that your knees twinge in the wrong weather. You know, you're going to know that, that your lungs have a certain capacity. So you can only breathe in so much before your ribs start to hurt. You know, we're all constrained by a bunch of things. You know, there, there's the old theory that we can manage to, to bench press our own weight, for instance. On, on average, pretty much every person can do it under the right circumstances. We all struggle to open a, a bag of chips. What's the deal? <laughs> What's the deal with that? And the answer is, of course, we stop ourselves from using all that strength because if we did use it, if we, if we powered all of our muscles in one instant to the absolute extent of their strength, our bones would shatter. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to deal with that. Bad things would happen. So... That being said, how much of that is the brain aware of? Is the information stored up here? Is it stored down here? Is it about a relationship between different neurons? Is it about the hormones that run through the blood? Where does it all come from? Who knows? Not us. We're guessing. We don't know anything. We're a red hot mess. <laughs> that is the perfect point to mind it up. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. So when I say it's complicated, that's because we're guessing. 
we're doing our best. We have a lot of evidence. This is not to say that you should not listen to your doctor or psychologist or therapist or psychiatrist, right? They do know what they're talking about. It's just that a lot of these things don't have one answer. They're different for a lot of people. Everyone has their own answer to these things because everyone's got their own brain and therefore their own soul. Psychology, study of the soul. There we go. All done. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.